it is an honor anytime I get the chance to share with you anything about the Lord because he has changed my life and infused me with meaning and purpose and, and, and helped me understand uh, why I am here and what I need to be doing and, and why things happen the way they happen. And I can testify firsthand the faithfulness of God is incredible. And so many people have been going through so many tough times that I've been talking to lately. And I was speaking with a brother this morning. And he told me about just the, the struggles that, that are going on with his son. And how he said, you know, in my entire life, this has maybe been the most challenging season for me. And I, I shared with him uh, uh, something that I had uh, in an email I shared with someone else earlier in the week. And that is this. I was well into adulthood before I understood the significance of the story in Daniel about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. God did not stop the king from throwing them in the fiery furnace. God did not prevent them from experiencing the fiery furnace. God walked with them in the fiery furnace. God was with them and endured it with them. We do not have a God who says, you go suffer and don't worry about it. I'll take care of things in the end. We have a God who says, I will suffer with you. And I will take care of it in the end. And the power of the resurrection of Jesus is the most clear and graphic illustration of that point. It is a clear and graphic illustration of God saying, I will suffer on your behalf. And I will see that victory comes at the end. What an amazing God we serve. And I say that this morning because we're looking at an issue of the greatness of God or is God guilty of fraud from a legal and cynical perspective. This is what we're trying to investigate. And as we seek to investigate it, God of war or God of peace. Now, here's the deal. I taught the first session of this class several weeks ago. So I got to refresh your brain. Studies show that you left here with about 10% of what I had to say and probably forgot half of that over the last two weeks. So I need to reinforce it a little bit and we need to walk back through it, okay? So we looked at this the way Aristotle does. <laughs> we looked at this the way Aristotle does. Aristotelian logic says one of the first things you need to do is you need to question. You need to pose the question, figure out what the question is. And then after you figure out what it is, you start to analyze the different options for answering the question. Specifically, what have other people said about it? 
And then hopefully from that you can draw your own conclusions of what you believe it to do. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to question and then we're going to look at the various approaches. And then we're going to come to some conclusions and ideas. So with that, let's start with the question. The question is, is one of trying to discern what's wrong with this biblical picture. And so we've got this biblical picture that illustrates in one hand a loving God, but in the other hand we've got passages like this one. Go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Don't spare them. Kill man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep. Camel and donkey. And oh, by the way, we should add the tagline, that is God speaking. Wow. Wow. I mean, scoot that to one side. That's very different than the song we sang in youth group when I was young. Blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven. Or what I can see when my Lord is living in me. Except when he tells me to go kill the infants and the children and the women among the Amalek community. See, we didn't have that. We were working off of passages like John 13. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I've loved you. I give to you that you love one another. Just as I've loved you, people will know who you are if you love one another. Look at this passage of scripture. You've heard it was said. You've heard it was said that you shall um, uh, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. This is the God who said, go to Amalek and devote to destruction everything they have. I mean, these really do seem to be totally opposite of each other. So if that's the question, let's look at the various options and various approaches that people have had. Those various approaches, as I said last or several weeks ago, are all over the map. And so what some people have chosen to do is they've just chosen to alter the text. They'll just edit it. And some people have edited it tremendously. Some people will say the way they alter the text is they just take the Bible, they find Matthew. I see, Matthew, right here. And this line that severs Matthew from Micah, they just basically tear the Bible in in two pieces there. And they just say, well, that was the Old Testament. And they just throw it away. Uh, I've told some of you, uh, I I don't often quote scripture in closing argument or in trial at all. It's, It's not something I do. I don't ever want anyone to think that religion is a tool for me in a legal career. Um, it's, it's much more serious than that. And to me, it cheapens what I do in here because this is, I don't do this to further my legal career. I do my legal career so I can do this without charging for it. I, I don't want the cart before the horse. And so 
I don't often do it, but I was trying a case one time where I had the, the pastor of the main Baptist church in this small town on my jury. And I had no choice, it seemed to me. So in closing argument, for the first time in my life, I started closing argument quoting the Old Testament. I said, y'all have all heard the expression preaching to the choir. Everybody's yeah. I said, I feel like I'm preaching to the preacher. Because I have the preacher there and eight of the 12 jurors go to church with him. So I said to him, I said, so I guess the passage for my sermon slash closing argument comes from the Old Testament book of Micah. Who in the sixth chapter, the eighth verse, asks this question. What does the Lord require of you? Then answers it to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I said, you're here to do that. You're here to do justice. That's very important in the eyes of God. It's very important in the eyes of the state of Texas to do justice. And I walked through a closing argument. Now, the lawyer on the other side, this was a long time ago, and I, I hadn't reached any level of real notoriety in the legal community where he knew me from Adam. So he just thought I was some goofball plaintiff's lawyer who probably had memorized one passage of scripture so that I could use it in closing argument and then I would go out and party and carouse and cut up and do everything the pagan world does. He did not realize he was dealing with somebody who had translated the Bible to graduate from college. That I had taken Micah in Hebrew. That I, I mean, this is my thing. So he gets up and he knows he's got to win the Baptist preacher, right? So he decides he's going to out-Bible me. Bless his heart. So he says, uh, he, says he starts out, uh, Mr. Lanier stood up here and he quoted from the Bible. But Mr. Lanier quoted from the Old Testament. That's the Jewish Bible. We're people of the New Testament here. I was in a county where there may not have been enough Jews to do a bris. That's a circumcision. He said, right, Rick? Rick is Lewis's second favorite Jew uh, behind Jesus, but that puts him ahead of Paul. Um, so, so he says, we're people of the New Testament. As if the Old Testament doesn't apply. Just write off that part. Just tear the Bible in half. And, and, and to finish the story and then I'll get back to the lesson. So he said the passage that applies in our case comes from the New Testament. From the writings of the Apostle John. Who in a book we call 1 Corinthians said... And I jump out of my seat and said, Objection, Your Honor. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, not the Apostle John. <laughs> Judge Scalar kind of rocked back in his seat and looked in the ceiling. And for you legal nerds out there, he's thinking, Am I allowed to take judicial notice of this? <laughs> and he leans forward into the microphone and says, I'm going to have to sustain that objection. It was the Apostle Paul that wrote 1 Corinthians, not the Apostle John. At which point the 
pastor on the jury knew who was trying to play games with the text. But you don't alter the text. You don't tear out the Old Testament and say, well, that was the Old Testament. That's also altering God. As if there was a God of the Old Testament who, who just got cheerier as he got older. No, this is not altering God. It's not altering the text. God was this old shoe. He was this shabby, mean, vengeful Old Testament God who just hates people and got up on the wrong side of the bed. But hey, by the time the New Testament rolls around, he's had his coffee. He's, he's happy and loving and the world is a brighter place. No. One God, he hadn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and he'll be the same tomorrow. Heaven help us if we had such a God who changed. Heaven help us. So for some, it alters how we read the Bible. Now, if you were in class this morning or in the service, you'll see I used this exact same slide for eyewitnesses. It's handy. It alters how we read the Bible. And so some people believe you read the Bible. And that's where we ended last week. If you give me the next slide, please. We ended with me telling you the best is yet to come. And so now I want to start this week with the new material of different ways to read the Bible. I looked at some last week, but they were short. Here are the ones that I believe have some merit to them. Though I don't fully embrace them because I also see problems with them. But I want you to have all of the options that seem worth discussing in my mind so that you can decide what you want. Take it home. Talk about this over lunch. Discuss this. This is not something you resolve in a day, in a week, in a month. This is one of these things where we need to mull and chew over what God is about and who God is and try to understand him more fully every day, every week, every month, every year of our lives. There are some definite conclusions we can draw. But I'm not sure that we ever have everything figured out such that we can answer everyone's questions to everyone's satisfaction. So with those kind of backgrounds, let's go to the first one. Does God have some divine immunity? There's a book that I've put up here on the screen, Show Them No Mercy, Four Views on God and Canaanite Genocide. And one of the authors in the book talks about this idea that God has divine immunity. He's God. What right do you have to question him? It's kind of like when Job questioned God. Job questions God and Job and his friends. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter. And then God comes out and says, what right do you have to question me? Where were you when I made the world? Hot shot. Where were you when I established the laws of physics? Did I check you before I put the law of entropy in place? The frequency of light waves? Did I run those by you? And, and Job's kind of like, okay, sorry, man. Excuse me, you know. So that same attitude is the response of some people. Look, it's like God's got this get out of jail free card. 
He's God. Now, here's, here's, here's the words of one of these guys. Nothing evil can be attributed to God because God is, in his very essence, good. So, what appears to human mind as evil, acts of God, are not, in fact, evil acts at all, since they come from the Lord himself. There simply comes a point in which human reason must bow to the divine and recognize that his ways are truly not ours and his thoughts are truly above our own. Now this has got some merit. God is God and we are not. I see that. I'm familiar with Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. It starts with verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. That our God will abundantly pardon. Then here's the key. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways. Declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts than yours. So God is God. You don't like it? Tough. You don't get to argue. Just accept the fact he's thinking this stuff through better than you. Don't get so proud and high and mighty. Now, there is some some truth to that. We're not God. We can't begin to fathom his thoughts and understand the depths of him. But that should never be a cop-out that keeps us from addressing issues like this. God gave us this mind. God knows that we need it renewed, that we need to grow. But the writer of Hebrews challenges people not to just exist on spiritual milk, to to grow in the Lord so that you begin to understand him more fully. And so I don't like the idea of being challenged not to try and understand and see God more fully. I think he wants us to. I think he's open to questions. He's open to examination. I see that over and over and over and over in the Psalms. Say, well, yeah, but what about that Job stuff, man? That was pretty heavy, what you were telling us Job said. Yes, it was. There does come a time and a place where you've got to say, you accept what God is doing and you accept who he is. But that does not mean that you're not right in trying to understand who he is. That doesn't mean you're not right in trying to understand what he's doing. You are. So this leads to another position. Some say, and I pull this from hard sayings on the Bible. Walter Kaiser, Peter Davids, who by the way is a scholar in residence right now at the library. uh, F.F. Bruce and Manfred Brock. Hard sayings of the Bible. And the idea is God has justifiable reasons. Here's the passage. God dedicated these things or persons to destruction because they violently and steadfastly impeded or opposed his work over a long period of time. Okay. Still seems kind of harsh. Doesn't really explain the infants. 
But this is something that I was taught uh, uh, in, in a class I took one time in, in university. And I was taught it under the premise that um, uh, society's culture people reach a point of no return. Where they just won't ever respond in spite of God's best efforts. And the passage that was used then is Genesis 15, 13 through 16. This is where God's talking to Abraham. God says, I'm going to give you this land, but I'm going to send you away for a while. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They'll be servants there and afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation which they serve. And afterwards they'll come out with great possessions. They'll plunder the Egyptians. As for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried in a good old age. But they will come back here to the promised land in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. See, so the idea is. That God's not going to bring judgment until the iniquity is so far complete that there's nothing left to do but to judge. And this is the idea that God has justifiable reasons. Now, this goes on, and here's another quote out of it. Not because of your righteousness. This is from Deuteronomy 9. So this is Moses talking to the people. God through Moses. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart, Israel, are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is the idea that there was a justifiable reason That God needed to drive out those wicked people. That they'd hit a point of no return. That they were not going to be good for anything at all. Except polluting and disrupting God's holy plan. One last quote from this section. This is not doing evil that good may come. It's removing the cancer that could infect all of society. And eventually destroy the remaining good. I see merit to that. I think that clearly is some of what was going on. Scripture indicates it. I don't think it fully answers the questions. I don't, I don't just leave it there and put a period. I'm still troubled by the infant question, for example. And I'm eager to tell you some stuff about that next week. But I'm I'm certainly aware that there is some merit to this as it's been discussed. Let me give you another explanation. God's actions were for the greater good. Now this may seem weird to you, so I want you to listen to this. This is not not your father's Oldsmobile. This This is a little different make and model. The baneful... Have you used that word in the last month of your life? Baneful. I have found some TV shows quite banal 
but I just turned them off. The baneful injection of degenerate idolatry and moral depravity. Let me translate that for those who don't use this vocabulary. What they're saying is, it was so bad there. Now we continue. That it had to be removed before Israel could safely settle down in these regions and set up a monotheistic law-governed commonwealth as a testimony for the one true God. Much as we regret the terrible loss of life, we must remember that far greater mischief would have resulted if they'd been permitted to live on in the midst of the Hebrew nation. In other words, God is making the best of a bad situation. Now, the idea that God can make the best of a bad situation is biblical. If you look at passages like Matthew 19, verse 8, you see this. In Matthew 19, Jesus is talking about divorce. And the Pharisees come up and say to him, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Just any reason you want. And Jesus says, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is saying that don't take marriage lightly. God didn't make marriage where it would just could be the whim of the husband. To say, I'm tired of you. I want a newer model. Be gone. Jesus says it's not that way at all. The two become one flesh. So they ask him. They said, well, then why did Moses command someone to give a certificate of divorce when they send her away? And he said, because of your hardness of heart... Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but that's not the way it was set up. It wasn't set up to be that way. There are times where either hardness of heart or just some other end of life's raw deals are such that it's the best case scenario, but it's never the way it was meant to be. I don't, I, I, I know huge numbers of people who are divorced. But I've never met very many who found it was a really great process. Oh man, I loved getting divorced. It's just the coolest time of my life. It's not. It's not a good thing that people are just eager to do. It's a very painful process because there's something that's going on there, a, a ripping apart of what God had joined together. But sometimes it's making the best of a bad situation because the destruction is so great or, or any number of the, the, the faithfulness has been rent asunder and cannot be restored or whatever it may be. So uh, this isn't a lesson on that, but it is a illustration of the principle that sometimes God does things and allows things to happen 
because it's making the best of a bad situation. And so that's the argument that's being made here. And, and there is some merit to that argument. But I'm not sure that that's the real answer to the question either. I don't know that it explains everything the way I'd like it to be. Now, one of my favorite explanations, if we go back to this book on uh, um, the, uh, the name of the book is Four Views. It was put out by Zondervan. I've covered up the name. But if we go back to the book on this, go here, on these four views, Trimper Longman, who I've had in this class before, uh, he's a great, great Old Testament scholar. He writes on difficult passages, does a marvelous job. I give away copies of his commentary on Genesis like candy. Uh, uh, and that's saying something because it's like this hardbound, thick commentary. But I give those away uh, to anybody who's got big questions about Genesis because he does an amazing job in there. And also because he quotes our lessons from this class on a few pages. <laughs> Generally, when I give it away, I'll highlight those. He puts them as unpublished manuscript. But it's kind of cool to be in the footnotes, okay? So y'all are, in a sense, in the book. But Trimper's got some wonderful insight to very difficult passages in the Bible. And he does something really neat with this. He says, if you read the Bible as a book and consider this part of progressive revelation, and by that it means God reveals himself more and more as society and culture ages. How are we doing time-wise? We're doing okay. I need a kid who's under 12. Do we have a kid who's under 12 here who doesn't mind coming up on stage? Yes. Do you mind coming up on stage? Does that embarrass you to come up? Any one of you. You don't want, it doesn't embarrass you? Good. You come up too. Okay. Well, we've got two of you. Don't, don't shoot. Come up. Come up. We need a girl to come up here so this looks better. Come up, young man. Tell everybody your name. My name's Destin. Destin. And how old are you? I'm 12. 12. Perfect. My name is Fiona and I'm um, 10. Fiona is 10. Destin is 12. I need a teenager. Go, go over by Destin. Okay, Brittany, tell everybody your name. I'm Brittany, and I'm 17. 17, Brittany's 17. Now I need someone who is, uh, Dr. Bob, how old are you? Come on up here. Okay, this is probably not the best illustration, and I definitely cannot afford to give Dr. Bob the mic, so I will hold the mic while Dr. Bob, come over here, you stand by Brittany. This is Dr. Bob, one of my best friends in the world, who's a lawyer at the firm, but also a PhD psychologist. He's our jury psychologist who figures out how jurors are thinking. Would you please tell them your name? Dr. Bob. <laughs> and tell them how old you are. 60 plus He's in the 60-plus zone. 66 or 67. And, and uh, tell him what part of Texas you're from. I'm from North Texas. <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> now, here's the principle of progressive revelation. I want to tell you about the love of Jesus, okay? And I want to explain who God is. You're 10 years old, and I'm going to do the best I can in 10-year-old language, Okay? But when you turn 12 like Dustin, actually, you look like 
you're a little more mature and smarter than he is already. I'm joking, young man. This is, this is my buddy. When you turn 12 like Dustin, you will know the ways of the world much better than you do as a 10-year-old. And I can explain it to Dustin a little bit differently than I will you. Now, for Brittany, she's 17. She drives a car. I can explain to her using analogies of how to drive a car. She knows what they are because she's wrecked plenty of... I mean, she's driven... <laughs> Sorry, mom and dad. She's driven. She's got two older brothers. They've explained to her how to drive. Her mom and her dad have. I can do some things with her teaching that I can't do with you guys yet at your age. Then there's Dr. Bob in the 60 plus range. He's got a doctor in psychology, a PhD, a doctor of law degrees. He's got two doctorates. So he's a paradox. (laughs) He has been a, a He's done clinical psychology work. He's done jury study work. He's done legal work. He's done all sorts of things. I can explain it to him using analogies, pictures, and illustrations far different than y'all. Now, the idea here is that the Bible, in very primitive culture, God had a very primitive explanation of things, including who he was. But as culture grew, as people became less brutal... As people became more civilized, as people more and more understood the love of God, then he was able to finally progress to give his fullest revelation in Jesus. And so we see those stages in the Bible. Make sense? Thank you guys. Can you all thank them for us? Yep, y'all are done. Thank you. So with this idea of progressive revelation, Trimper Longman says, understand the Bible as this long flow of history. So in the beginning, we have part one. And in the first phase, God fights the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. And so this is something we're to realize. We're to realize that in the beginning, God has to take on Israel's enemies and fight them. And God does so. He's, it's not just the Israelites go in and destroy all of the Amorites or Amalekites or Canaanites. God does it for them. God is fighting their battles. And God fights these flesh and blood enemies. And then we move to a second phase, which you find in Joshua 7, where God actually fights Israel. You'll find it even before. But you'll find in Joshua, after they've entered the Holy Land, as they're trying to execute, when they don't do it right, God will fight Israel and set himself against Israel. And so that's that second uh, 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 phase in Joshua 7. A third phase, if we go to the next one. God says, can you give me my next slide? Thank you. God will come in the future as a warrior. God is coming as a victorious king. God is promising to fight on Israel's behalf. God is promising to an Israel in bondage. God is promising to an Israel uh, uh, in captivity. God is promising that he will come again victorious on behalf of Israel and will win for his people A kingdom that lasts forever. That's his promise. And so then Jesus comes, if you give me the next one, 
phase four, Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, he's no longer fighting the flesh and blood enemies of Israel. He's fighting on a much grander scale. He's fighting the spiritual powers and authorities. Jesus is fighting uh, 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 against the demons that are possessing people. Let me throw up some scriptures. If you'll put the next slide up there. Look at some of these scriptures. Matthew eleven four through 6. Jesus is being asked uh, um, what they, if, if John the Baptist wants to know if Jesus is the one. And Jesus says, uh, um, when he was asked, are you the one who's to come or should we look for another? Jesus' response is, go tell John what you see in here. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And Jesus is, is dealing with issues of the fall. Jesus is fighting something beyond just a, a, a nation or a country or an army. Jesus is fighting on his people's behalf. If you look beyond this, you look to um, Matthew twenty fifteen. It's the next one I had on that. Matthew twenty fifteen through 17. Look what Jesus says here. He says, Do you begrudge my generosity? The last will be first and the first will be last. So Jesus comes and he's fighting these enemies. They're not flesh and blood enemies. It's not a flesh and blood army. But he's teaching his people a new concept. That the first are going to be last and the last will be first. And if you look at it in the dynamic, Jesus is the one who's being physically suffering. The war that's being waged is one that costs Jesus physically. It's his flesh and blood that's destroyed. Attacked. He's the one who defends. And yet that destroyed, attacked Jesus, flesh and blood, dead, is resurrected anew. And is brought back to life after destruction. He's not abandoned to destruction. He's not abandoned to Sheol. And this is why Paul in Ephesians 6 says, our battle is no longer a battle against flesh and blood. That our battle is one against the spiritual forces and the, our, our armor is a helmet of salvation, a breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, sword of the spirit. And so this is this phase. The fifth and final phase is the final battle. The final battle is where Jesus will come again. And make everything aright. And so this is just five phases of the holy war that are progressively revealed in the Bible. That's Trimper's position. Now all of these positions have great merit... They're much better than the position of Frederick Nietzsche, who just said that God is dead. And Time Magazine caught up on that uh, in 1966, I think, was the cover of Time Magazine. Nietzsche said it back in the 1800s, late 1800s. But that's where it is. Now, those are some typical views, if you were researching this, that would help you answer the question... Is he a God of war 
Is he a God of love? I like some of that, but I got a whole lot of my own I'd like to add. And so I want you to know that there are some things that I still think you need to think about in the midst of all of this. And some ways that this weaves together some of the strengths from some of these positions without some of what I perceive to be weaknesses of them. So this is a thrill for me to get to share with you. But this week, let me just tell you the conclusion is, is God guilty of fraud? No. So with that, let's look at our take action now steps. But here's your take action steps right now. Number one, ask for wisdom. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote the following. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Wisdom in Hebrew is this word, chachmah. It, it means to see things the way God sees them. See, this isn't a removed God who says, my ways aren't your ways, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, so tough it up. Just get on with life. Let me be God. God's not that way at all. God's ways aren't our ways. We won't naturally, as fallen people, do things the way God does. God's thoughts aren't our natural thoughts. But God tells us if we'll ask him to reveal his thoughts to us, to show us the way he sees things, then he will. That's what wisdom is. It's not head knowledge. This is not, oh Lord, I would like to memorize the Encyclopedia Britannica. Now, if you're younger than 25, that's like Wikipedia. I would like, no, he's not, you don't ask God for head knowledge and he gives it. Lord, I would like to learn a foreign language and I don't want to have to study. Could I please be fluent in Italian? I want to go to Italy and order pizza. It doesn't work that way. What this is saying is, if you lack wisdom, if you lack the ability to see things the way God does, then ask God. He gives generously to everyone without reproach and it'll be given to him. I believe if we ask God for wisdom, God will give us wisdom and we'll begin to better understand and see things the way God does. And I think it'll help. And I'm excited to do that with you next week. Next action step um, is to see God as God. Here's the passage that goes with that. There is truth, as Luke said, that when he wrote on Jesus, is quoting Jesus, no one is good except God alone. We do need to look to God for an explanation of what is good. But we've got to understand if we don't look at these passages and we don't seek to understand them properly, then we wind up with a people who can justify a holy jihad war because they think that God is a God who is into genocide of people who aren't part of the holy group. And it's imperative that we explain and understand these passages. Because that is not the God we have. And he's getting a bad rap. He's not one God and then the other. He's not left one day and then right. He's not grouchy in the morning and happy after coffee. 
So we need to perceive this God, and we need his wisdom to do it. And this is not just an academic exercise. This is important. This is the root of our understanding of how we live and what we can rightly expect from others in our world. Last take action step. I want to welcome his spirit. I do know that there's part of this that, that as Zacharias quoted God where, where it says, I will refine them as refining silver. I know that there are times where we go through this life and it's not blue skies and rainbows. I know there are times of suffering. I know that my, my friend I was talking to this morning who's in a very difficult season with his son has, has, has got very real issues very real struggles. But as my friend told me, he says, you know, the wild part is it's been the most difficult time of my life. But from it, I can testify that God is good. That God loves me. That he loves my son. That he is at work. And that this is going to work out for the best. It's just thinking miserable while I'm going through it. And that's okay. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, thank you for the blessed opportunity to speak about you this morning in two different forums. You have blessed me beyond measure to give me this opportunity. And I, and I pray that through your spirit, words and pictures and ideas have stimulated growth in people to grow in conviction over your love of your passion for us, and of your redemption. Lord, we're honored to know you. We want more wisdom. We want to love you better. We want to love you more fully. And we want to more fully experience and share your love with this world. So help us to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.